I'm actually offended I wasn't asked to be a part of the... the I mean, I, the quartet thing would have been awesome, just in my opinion. But, you know, we got, the, we got a few more weeks before Christmas, so. I'm, he, I'm here, you know, you got my number. Oh, so good, and uh, so good seeing Justin and little Olive up here reading the Christmas story. Here we are, you know, you showed up this morning, and uh, you saw the lights, and you see the trees, and we've entered that season, um, and I'm wearing this sweater, <laughs> you know, all of that, right? It's, it, here we are, and uh, I know for many of us, we probably feel um, a little bit like, how did we get here? It's already the end of 2023. It's already December. This is wild. Um, but every year when we enter this season, uh, there is an opportunity for us to take some deep breaths and slow down and to really enter the season rather than simply sort of live through the season. And that's our hope for these next few weeks as we together collectively as a church family begin um, our beautiful long walk toward Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin that journey. If we've never met, my name's Jay. I'm a part of the team. And uh, we're really grateful you're here. So to start, I want to show you an image. This is an image of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Has anybody been to St. Paul's Cathedral. I've never been, but it looks incredible. Uh, this version, now a church at this location has existed for, for many years, for a long time, but this version of St. Paul's Cathedral was actually built, it was completed in the year 1710. So it's generally in terms of like human history, it's a fairly recent building, you know, 300 years old or so. And um, it's a beautiful building, and it's this sort of epic uh, architectural marvel in the middle of very modern London. Again, it was completed in 1710. Now, the next image I want to show you is a painting. And this is a painting of St. Paul's Cathedral, but you will notice that St. Paul's Cathedral in this painting is not in its actual location. You will notice in this painting that St. Paul's Cathedral is off in the distance in the background. In the foreground of the painting, what you see is a Venetian canal. What's really interesting is if you could see this painting closer, you would notice that this Venetian canal actually represents, it depicts, Renaissance-era Venice. So when was Renaissance-era Venice? It was like more than 200 years before St. Paul's Cathedral was built. This painting actually makes no sense. It's not true. St. Paul's Cathedral is not located in Venice and it certainly was not built during Renaissance era Venice. This is a painting by an artist named William Marlowe, a British artist. He painted it in 1795. Now, I show you this painting because this painting is one of the famous examples of a particular genre of art called capriccio. And capriccio is it's an Italian word that means whimsy, something whimsical, or better yet, something unexpected. And capriccio, as a genre of art, it really took on, um, it, it took off during the Renaissance and the Baroque periods when artists at the time, they were fond of doing this. They would essentially take famous landmarks 
and they would paint them into um, scenes and places and times when those famous landmarks did not belong. Now, it's, it's sort of out of style now. Artists don't really do this much these days. But as I think about Advent, the last few weeks, I've been thinking about Capriccio. I've actually been looking at different pieces of art, Capriccio art, where these famous artists would take big, giant, like well-known monuments and paint them. They would depict them in scenes where they just absolutely did not belong. And the reason it makes me think of Advent is because 2,000 years ago, someone who did not belong showed up on the scene. Advent is like a capriccio painting. It is the moment when the king of the universe sinless and blameless and glorious and holy and beautiful arrived on the scene right in the middle of human mess. It's like looking at a piece of art that really makes no sense. Now, you and I have become so familiar with Christmas that we take this for granted. We think that it is absolutely normal and expected that Jesus would show up in a dingy, dirty cave that we call a manger. It was a feeding trough where animals would eat. It smelled horrible. It was cold and dark and filthy. This is like St. Paul's Cathedral landing in the middle of a Venetian canal. How would it even stand? The foundations would not be sturdy enough. There would not be geographically enough room for the magnitude of the cathedral to, to be in the midst of a Venetian canal. It makes no sense, and yet that is what is happening during the Advent season. You know, the word advent comes from a Latin root word, uh, advenir, which means to arrive. What's so interesting is that the English word adventure shares the same root word. Advent is an adventure. We don't typically think about it that way because, again, we have become so familiar with this season. It's like, okay, it's December, home alone, Elf, Christmas sweater, hot chocolate, tree, lights, some presents, honey-baked ham, whatever it is, right? And then you just kind of roll through it, and then December 26th, you're on that ladder, and you're pulling the lights down, and all you're thinking is the new year, and all that I've got to accomplish, all of the challenges that I face, all of the goals and aspirations that I have for the year to come. We just kind of roll right through this season. But what we want to do for the next few weeks as we journey together toward Christmas Eve is take a moment, take a deep breath, a step back, and just observe the incredible, magnificent art piece that is this season that someone who absolutely had no business stepping into the mess of our stories made the choice to do exactly that. And it should cause absolute wonder in us. It should pull apart and expand our imaginations. It should deepen the well of our belief in possibility. 
So again, for the next few weeks, we are going to explore the incredible story that the God of the universe comes down in human form as Jesus the Son, that he comes down to earth, down to right here, our mess, our brokenness, our lives. So let's begin here, John chapter one, verse 14. What does it say? The word, and we know this, we've talked about this many times here, this is Jesus himself. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We're just gonna sort of circle around this verse today. The word, Jesus, became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. So that phrase, made his dwelling, is a single word in the original text in the Greek. And it's a word that's best understood, he tabernacled among us. Now we have to pull this apart a little bit because we don't use that word much these days. Tabernacle, when's the last time you used that word in just everyday conversation with someone? Never, it's just this ancient archaic word. But that's what this single word that we translate into the English phrase made his dwelling, that's what it means. When we typically read this verse, we just think to ourselves generally, oh, what it means is Jesus came to earth as a baby. And it certainly does mean that. But it means so much more. He tabernacled with us, requires us to ask the question, okay, what is a tabernacle? If you go way back to the book of Exodus, it's a a book in the Bible we go to a lot around here. It's like one of the key crucial stories that unlocks the rest of scripture. And you know the Exodus story, Moses, God leads the people out of slavery in Egypt through this man, Moses. Now this is Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 to 38. Here's what's really important. I am about to read for you the final words in the entire book of Exodus. This is how the book of Exodus ends, and it unlocks for us what it means that Jesus tabernacled with us. Here's what it says. Kind of a longer text, but hang with me. Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle, an altar, and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. More on that in a moment. Now Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. And so the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. The tabernacle was a tent-like structure 
that Moses led the people to build, and he did this because God instructed him to do it. Let me show you an artist's rendering of what the tabernacle in the wilderness would have looked like. They would have constructed this and torn it down every time God, showing himself in this cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, whenever that cloud or that fire would begin to move, the people would tear down the tabernacle, pack all of their things, and they would follow the cloud. And then whenever this cloud settled in that place, the people would take a deep breath and say, okay, this is where we're gonna be for a little while. And they would set up their own tents so they could sleep and live. And then they would set up this tabernacle. They would do this over and over and over again. And they did it for decades during their journey through the wilderness. Now, why did they do this? Because they did not know where they were going. They only knew who they were going with. The tabernacle was a very specific meeting place that God instructed his people to create in order to be a suitable place for God to actually, physically, literally meet with his people. Now, that, that brings us to another question. Why? Why go through all the trouble of creating a tent? Isn't God everywhere? Like that's what most of us believe, right? The answer to that question is yes. The theological term for it is omnipresence. God is present everywhere. Yes, this is true. This was true back then during the Exodus story. It is still true today. God is everywhere. The scriptures make that abundantly clear. This does not mean that God is everything, right? This is like there's a whole other world of pantheism and polytheism and all of this idea. There's one particular way of seeing the world, and this is actually quite prevalent in our culture today. In fact, I've read many articles about the rise in spirituality in um, Silicon Valley as a whole, and it's actually just pantheism. It's this idea that everything is God. You are God, and I am God, and that tree is God, and that Lexus is God, and this Starbucks Frappuccino is God, and everything is divine. We're all divine, right? That's not what omnipresence means. There is one God, but that one God, because he's not finite humans like you and I, that one God can be and is everywhere at all times. He is with you when you go to work, and at the very same time, he is with her when she goes and takes care of her kids on Tuesday. Whatever it might be, God is everywhere at all times. That is true. So why build a tent? You ever wonder that? Like, why? What is the point? Throughout the biblical story, what we see God do is we see him go local. It happens over and over and over again. And it begs the question, why does he do this? And this is like a whole other 40-minute teaching we could do at another time, and maybe we will. But simply put, God goes local and he draws specifically near specific people in order that they might know where and how to find him. God going local, asking them to build a tent is not because God really likes tents. 
It is because God wants his people to know in the midst of your confusion, your lack of knowledge about where we are going, I want you to know who you are going with. And I wanna make it abundantly clear where and how to find me. So build this tent and I will insert my glory, my presence there. And when you need me, you know exactly where to find me. God goes local time and time again. And this is a beautiful gift. The theologian N.T. Wright, he describes it this way. He says that the making and divine filling, that means, you know, like the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's what he's talking about. We'll talk more about that in a second. The making and divine filling of the tabernacle is really the climax of the whole Genesis to Exodus story. It's like a new creation, a micro world where God wants to come and dwell. This is why God rescued his people from Egypt because he could not come and dwell in that land of idols. And this is why he gave the people the law, not as so often in Christian imagination to give them a ladder of good works to climb up to heaven, but to make them into the people in whose midst he might indeed come and live. Maybe we're in this room today and maybe we, like, we intellectually believe the story that God came down, that that's what Christmas is about. But maybe it is harder for you on a personal level to imagine not just that God came down in this cosmic story, but that actually God goes local with you. That God draws near to you. And the reason that's harder for many of us to believe is because better than anyone else, I know the mess that is my life. I know how unkempt and chaotic this is in here. And to think cosmically God sent his son Jesus to the earth is one thing. But to believe that God would go so local that he would by his spirit enter this mess, this brokenness, that's harder to believe. But what we find in the scriptures over and over and over again is that though God is omnipresent, though he is everywhere, he goes local. He dwells amongst his people, which means he dwells within each and every person that is a part of his people. Let me show you. Colossians chapter two, what does Paul say, the writer, Paul? He says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Again, don't have time to unpack completely, but that word fullness is a word that in the original language is laced with Exodus underpinnings. Like when Paul says the fullness of the deity the original Jewish audience would have immediately known, oh, that's like when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and it became full. So Paul says what happened in the tabernacle, God's glory localizing and entering into this tent is what happened in Jesus. Jesus is now full of God's presence. Jesus is God. And then... Paul doesn't stop there. This is all tabernacle language. Ephesians chapter two, what does Paul say? 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. When you read temple, read tabernacle. The temple was simply the extension or the evolution of the tabernacle. Now you have become the holy temple or tabernacle in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become what? A dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is like very clear, obvious tabernacle language in the original text. So what does all of this mean? I'll show you this next image. This means that in Exodus 40, we read about God dwelling in the literal tabernacle, the literal tent. In Colossians 2 and the entire Christmas story, what it tells us is then God dwells in Jesus. Jesus is God. He is the fullness and representation of God. But then it goes further. In places like Ephesians 2 and elsewhere in the New Testament, what do we discover? God dwells in us. Followers of Jesus are now the tabernacle. God is closer to you than you think. If you have said yes to Jesus, in whom God dwells, Jesus, who is God, if you have said yes to him, then you now are being built into a literal tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Despite the mess and the chaos and the brokenness that resides in here, for you and for me, God makes his home in us. Maybe as you look out for the next few weeks and think about the holiday season, instead of like meaningful connection, maybe you feel isolated and alone. When it feels like everybody else is like really seen and loved and cherished, maybe you feel misunderstood or forgotten. Maybe in this season of light and this season of love, instead of love, what you are experiencing today is heartache and grief and loss. If that is you, if you feel isolated, alone, forgotten, heartbreak and heartache and grief and loss, God is closer than you think. He tabernacles in you. The God of the universe, St. Paul's Cathedral, has found a way to make his home in the tiny, thin, shallow Venetian canal that is your life. That's the Christmas story. I love Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of Psalm 139. He puts it this way. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Back to John 1.14. Again, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then what does it say? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. 
When John, the writer here, references God's glory, this is also, for John, a very clear calling back to the Exodus tabernacle story. John 1.14 is like literally John, the writer, taking the tabernacle story from Exodus and just explaining it through Jesus. Let me show you. Back to Exodus 40. Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What is this word? When we think glory, we think Steph Curry's four NBA championships, right? We think Steph Curry in 2022, game six, or whatever it was, game five, when he drops like 40-something points in the Boston Garden, I've lost 80% of the room, doesn't matter. This, this one's just for me, because they're not playing well this year, so I like to live in the past of the glory years. That's what we call it, the glory years, right? Or like you look through your yearbook when you were young and handsome and dashing in high school and you're like, oh, the glory years. That's what we think to ourselves, you know? Glory, glory is just, in our minds, we understand it as the sort of external expression of greatness against the metric of culture and society. I mean, think about, just back to the warriors for a moment. Think about, like I was telling Mark this morning, because we are not very good this year, and they lost a terrible game yesterday. And uh, I was telling Mark I've sort of resigned to just failure this year. I just, I'm trying really hard not to care because I'm too emotionally invested, and it's not good for my mental health how much I care about the Warriors. So I'm just like, we're just bad. We're going to be bad. It's okay. But think about how much, like, how, or how ridiculous that is. These giant grown men are running around in shorts, throwing a ball into a hoop. And millions of people around the world, myself included, it's like my hopes and dreams hinge on whether they can get that ball into that hoop. How insane is that? I'm going to a game in a couple weeks, Mark and I and someone else on our team, we're going to a game, and I... It cost us hundreds of dollars to get seats. What is wrong with me? <laughs> think about this. That's, that's how we think of glory. That's not glory, biblically speaking. The word glory in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word kavod. And kavod has, has lots of meanings. There actually isn't a great English translation, which is why we use the English word glory. I think it sort of comes the closest, but it's not really close. Kavod means lots of things. It means like literal weight or heaviness, magnificence, grandeur. But it's not about simply what someone does. It's not about an accomplishment primarily. It's about an essence, a sort of being. Here in the Exodus story, the passage I just read to you, and throughout the Old Testament, God's glory, his kavod, represents several things, but often, very often, and certainly in the text I read to you about the tabernacle, it actually represents God's tangible presence. 
Now, I risk losing half of this room because the moment you hear me say God's tangible presence, your, your radar is going off. You're like, uh-oh. Is our church gonna become one of those like crazy, weird, Jay's gonna start preaching in tongues sort of places? No. You, you know this if you've been around. We hold the scripture in the highest regard. Nothing outside of what the Bible reveals to us about what is true. But I've come to believe this is what the Bible reveals to us. That glory represents God's tangible presence. It has a literal weight and a mass. Remember what the story said? Moses could not enter the tabernacle. Why? Because God's kavod, his glory, filled it. That's a physical reality, you guys. So, let me ask a question. Have you ever experienced the physical, tangible, weighty presence of God? My immediate answer on a personal level is no. Like, I've never walked into this room and, like, you know, had to physically stop because God's physical presence is so heavy here that I, I physically can't move. I've never really experienced that in my life. So my immediate response is no, never. I have never experienced the physical, tangible, weighty presence of God. But then I go back to Colossians chapter two. Remember, in Colossians two, Paul is borrowing tabernacle language. What does it say? I read verse nine for you already. In Christ, all the fullness, that's tabernacle language, the fullness of the deity of God lives in bodily form. But then if you go to verse 10, what does he say? And in Christ, you, you all, that you is plural, all believers in Jesus, all followers of Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Typically, we read that verse and we take it sort of metaphorically. Oh, yeah, like there's nothing, you know, when I feel down or empty, no, God's with me, so I can feel full. That's not what Paul is saying. This is tabernacle language. What is Paul saying? The tangible, physical, weighty presence of God is full in you. And so the question have I ever experienced the physical, tangible, weighty presence of God? The answer is actually yes. Because every follower of Jesus as an embodied, image-bearing human is a physical, tangible, weighty expression of God's living presence. God resides in you. That does not mean you are God. It means that the one true God of the universe makes his home in you. He dwells in you. He tabernacles in you. So what that means is that your physicality is the container in which the cosmos are contained. The God of the universe resides in you if you are a follower of Jesus. What does that mean? That means that no matter what people have told you, 
what culture tells you, what social media tells you, never believe for a second that you don't matter or that your body doesn't matter or that your worth or your value is tied up in performance or success or social status or achievement or what you have or attain or on and on. What this means is that you, simply by living and breathing and being alive, you matter because if you are a follower of Jesus, the God of the universe is literally in you. You matter. Your body matters. Your life matters. Every breath you take matters. The way you love and serve and care, it all matters because God is in you. He tabernacles in you. He dwells in you. N.T. Wright, again, puts it this way. The spirit thus constitutes Jesus' followers corporately and individually as temple or tabernacle people, places where God comes to dwell. And I love this line. You are points of overlap between heaven and earth. That is what you are. When you walk out into the brokenness and the cynicism and the hopelessness and despair of our world, when the world says everything's going to hell in a handbasket, you, in your body, in your behavior, through your life, are a reminder to a hopeless world. No, actually, things are not going to hell in a handbasket. Heaven is coming to earth. That is you. I'm gonna invite Mark and the team to come back up. We're gonna sing and respond here in a moment. Um, I wanna show you a picture. This is a photograph that Jenny took of me um, back in April. Right after Easter, Jenny and I uh, packed our bags for a couple of days and we um, flew out to Las Vegas and then we got a rental car and we drove like three hours to Zion National Park. Anybody ever been to Zion National Park? incredible, incredible place. And um, I'm a, I can be a bit of a planner sometimes if I'm really like excited about something. So I had like looked at all the photos. I'd read so many blogs. I've wa- I had watched so many vlogs on YouTube about Zion. I've, I'd done all this research. So on one hand, when we went to Zion, there was a sort of familiarity. I was like, okay, I think I feel like I have a good sense for the park and how we're going to get from place to place. And I, I had seen so many photographs and watched so many videos. I was like, I know what I'm about to see. You know what I mean? I was like, there was a familiarity. But those of you who've been to Zion, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. I got there and I was like, oh, This is not, this is, the pictures and the videos cannot possibly do this justice. We have been so inundated with the imagery of Christmas and Christmas stories that it's become so familiar, it's almost become rote. And I show you this picture of myself at Zion because it looks like I was posing, right? It looks like it was a social media, like, hey, Jenny, I'm gonna look over here and look up and act like I'm marveling at this whole thing. And, you know, it looks like that, but that was not it. I literally, I just jumped up on that rock and I stood there. This is like right by um, a river. And uh, 
I just stood there for a long while. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I had seen this image, like you're seeing the image, a thousand times. But standing there, I just could not believe what I was seeing. And I realized in that moment, I had spent so much of my recent months just looking down at the stuff right in front of me. You know, the stress and the tension and the anxiety of just life in Silicon Valley. And I had just kind of recently stepped into my role here and trying to figure all of those things out. And maybe today, as we enter the Christmas season, maybe you find yourself looking down as well. Like maybe it's relationships. You're like, oh my gosh, Christmas holidays. Like how are we gonna navigate all the tension? Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's like some sort of internal striving. I don't know what it is. My invitation to you for the next few weeks is that you would look up you would fix your eyes upward and once again be mesmerized by the adventure that is Advent. That God in his fullness came to dwell amongst us and that God in his fullness dwells in you now. That every breath you breathe is the spirit of God animating and enlivening and energizing you that no matter what the world has told you about who you are or who you're not, Christmas is the reminder that you are the home of God himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'll end with these words and then we'll sing. Bonhoeffer says this, look up, you whose gaze is fixed on this earth who are spellbound by the little events and changes on the face of the earth. Look up to these words, you who have turned away from heaven disappointed. Look up, you whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are heavy and who are crying over the fact that the earth has gracelessly torn us away. Look up, you who burdened with guilt cannot lift your eyes. Look up. Your redemption is drawing near. Wait, and something quite new will break over you. God will come. God has come. He's coming again. And he's already here in you and in me. Let's stand and sing together.